This is Get Into Geek. We talk movies, TV, comics, books, games, anything that gets our geek juices flowing. And uh, we are teaming up with Event Cinemas for a limited edition series here on Get Into Geek for In The House, the new season to kick off 2018. Now, if you aren't familiar with In The House, it's a program put on a couple of times uh, a year by Event Cinemas, the wonderful people from Event Cinemas, a cult film Festival And it's actually chosen by the people. So if you do attend uh, any of these movies, you can vote on what you'd like to see in the new festival. It all kicks off again this week, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Before we get into it too much more, my name is Mitch Lewis. And to my right, Matty Gibson. Hello. From the uh, Get Into Geek team. Uh, now, we come here, if you are new to Get Into the Geek, we uh, we talk about new release movies. We talk about TV. Uh, we review books. We do review comics, as I said before. A little bit of everything. Whatever we're interested in. Hopefully, you're interested in it too. And uh, we do love our movies, I guess, more than anything uh, on this channel. At we, our core. At, at our core. core. It's all about the films and uh, about the geek stuff. But really, event cinemas, what I've loved about In the House, and I've actually been a part of uh, the In the House programs for about, I think, four seasons now, Matty. Yeah. So this one was really cool. And they, they came to us and they said, would you like to bring Get in the Geek on board? Yep, great. What do we got? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, that's not a geek film, but it actually came out in the year of my birth, 1986. <laughs> I just love this movie. Like, I know it's 30 years old and comedy is so subjective at any point you know, in time with any movie. To get a movie 30 years old, especially about high school, and I still just think this movie just works it's, so well still now. It holds up so well. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that every high school student doesn't have a cell phone, yeah. Other than that, it all it all holds up. And there's no IMing. Like it all holds up. Yeah. It's like you look back at certain episodes of like Friends or something like that, and you you think you remember. Oh, that was such so funny. And you watch it back and you go, ooh, like it dates really yeah, yeah, easily. Yeah. Whereas Seinfeld, and again, that some of those, but some of those are really timeless. They're just these little moments in time that. A universal, yeah, and to me, that's what this film is. It's, it's the best kind of comedy. Like when you know, I know we we did the introduction tonight. We were recording our podcast uh, the night of the screening, and what we will be doing, I should probably explain what we will be doing uh, with our event cinemas in the house podcast that we'll be doing. We'll actually be releasing them a week in advance uh, of the films coming out. So you can listen to them if you are a fan of the films and we'll basically reminding you that you can go and check them out on the big screen because a lot of these movies, Matty, like this one, 31 years old, uh, Ferris Bueller's uh, Day Off nearly is. A lot of them a lot older, some of them more recent, but really they're at least 10 or 15 years old, a lot of these films. Most people that go and watch them haven't seen them on the big screen, yeah. if at all. So we're here to remind you that these films are on. Talk about them if you have seen them. And if you are new to the film, well, this podcast is here. If you go and watch these films, you're interested in it. You can mm. listen to our podcast, listen to our review, hopefully agree with us, and basically have the conversation that you want to have after seeing a movie for the first time with us on the way yeah, home. Yeah, well, it's a great series because it's a lot of the films, especially this season, are films that they're those things like, if you haven't seen it when it first came out, it's like, I'll get to that. I know I'm going to see it one day. And it's like, DVD shops are so sparse these days. <laughs> it's like you kind of, if it's not out in cinemas, yep. you reduce to, you know, Netflix, you know, and, and streaming services. And it's like, well, if it's not on there, you just don't have access to it. I mean, this series, you can go and see The Godfather 2 on the big screen. Mm. You can go and see The Fly, Edward Scissorhands, things like that. That's what's so cool about it, getting to see it on the big screen. And... Uh, next fortnight's films, I'll have to. Be, I've never seen The Fly. It's one of those films that I've been wanting to see for years and years and years and years. And you put it to the back of the list, back of the list, back of the list. So it's like if you've never seen it, you can listen to us. We can talk about it, 
And then if you like the sound of it, you can go and see the film. Yeah, and a lot of them, you know, like I guess the flight to a lesser extent, but then when you get to something like maybe Escape from New York down the line a little bit or Robocop Flash Gordon, these are ones you really would like to, I guess, have experienced the first time on the big screen, you know, so... um, Unless you're combing like midnight movies on like you know <laughs> secondary channels or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that <laughs> we will, let's just run through the program we'll get we will get to ferris bill in a sec but uh, ferris bill is day off uh, in a fortnight's time on the uh, 17th of february the fly and gattaca a uh, bit of a uh, sci-fi double there stand by double me feature. double the, feature the only thing Sorry. missing is a drive-in really for a oh, double perfect feature. yeah <laughs> and yeah really crappy sound although we don't want that <laughs> event. event cinemas will look after you stand by me the untouchables fight club et a robocop and flash gordon 80s banana Nanza double feature there on the 28th of April. Godfather Part 2, as you said, Escape from New York, and it all wraps up the 9th of June with Edward Scissorhands. I kind of want to bring my 10-year-old niece to E.T. just so she can see it on the big screen the yeah. way it's supposed to be seen. You know, we're children of the 80s. We never got to see, you know, the original Star Wars on the big screen mm. when it came out. One of my earliest memories was as a 9 or 10-year-old, like as, as, as a movie memory, is going to see Empire when it came out for the um, re-release special editions. Yeah, right. To see that on the big screen yeah. blew my tiny, like, 10-year-old mind. Yeah, because so you, like, you watch it so many times growing up, you feel like yeah. you have experienced the the, the, the most. On on VHS, possible. on my, you know, 15-inch TV at home in, <laughs> you know, 1994. <laughs> so it's like to see stuff like that on the big screen is just such a cool thing. Yeah, and even if you have seen them a lot, you know, it's just so it's great to get to go watch it. And I feel like that's what Ferris Bueller's Day Off is to me. Like, I've grown up with this film. I've watched this so many times, but it's one of those movies that if it's on TV or, you know, if I'm going to find it on a streaming service, I'm probably going to stick around and watch it because it's just got that nostalgic feel, that love. It's just a bit of a comfort sort of thing. Mm. You know, you flicking around TV trying to find something that's going to give you that next piece of entertainment for the next 30 minutes. You find Ferris Bueller, you just like you feel safe with it, you turn it on. It's just such a fun movie. Like we said, it, it really does hold up. And even though when you look at, say, the actors that are in it, Matthew Broderick, you look at him now, Broadway star and all that sort of stuff, but you don't look at that guy somewhere between short and mid-height man. He's graying. He's a little bit chubby. He's married to the chick from Sex and the City. <laughs> you know, he sort of looks like her tagline a lot of the time. He was the epitome of cool yeah. in this movie. And again, too, he's, like, he's this short little kid. He doesn't have any very many close friends, you get the idea in this film, but everybody loves this guy just because he's a bit yeah. of a what's, rebel. What's but... that old adage? Um Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's fair. And usually that's reserved for these bulking heroes, a Flash Gordon type, I yeah, guess. Harrison you know, for Ford, the... yes. you know? But then you look at Ferris Bueller, this short little guy wearing an awful looking vest, somehow pulls it off, you know? And it's the simplest of premises. Like, you sum this movie up. What's that movie about? Kid Wag School. Yeah. Which is something everyone can relate to. Yeah. Like... How many movies have been written like that? Even ones that have tried to be Ferris Bueller since. Same premise, and just it doesn't have have the heart. Now, stranger, you were just actually telling me a bit of trivia, and I want you to to tell me while we talk about this film and all the heart and the effort that went into this movie yeah. about how this film was written. Yeah, John Hughes wrote it in a week, basically. <laughs> I've heard of people writing scripts in a week. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. But I, this blows my Talk mind. Talk about overachievers. Especially being a comedy. when you How you can just write jokes. Yeah. And like who knows how many drafts he went through in a week, but still mm. to write jokes down and go, yeah, that'll work. Yeah. You know. Well, so much of what he writes, like I've actually got, you were talking about sort of finding, finding the movie on TV. I've actually got the 2005 special edition DVD Good man. In, my, in my library. And there's a great, you know, special feature disc and it has all this stuff on there, like great interviews with John Hughes. And he talks about how so much of it is just writing his life. Yeah. Um, he was the fairest, not in the cool sense in the terms of he had the girlfriend and he had a Cameron who was the guy that always tagged along. Yeah. And yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. 
Um, Ferris's room was basically what his room looked like as a kid with oh, all those posters cool. and stuff on the wall. <laughs> but um, but in terms of writing it, basically, um, the the studio basically went to him and said, "Look, we're coming up on a writer's strike. We need to get as much." completed scripts as possible um, so we can start shooting over the writer's strike um, and still, you know, comply with all that. You've got a week. And John went, okay, all right. And he came back in a week with a finished script. Now, having said that, there was so much of the film that was ad-libbed after the point. You know, he's, he's so, from what I, you know, watching these special features, from what I learned, he's really adaptive and and cooperative in terms that he'll let people add their own bits and pieces to the film and he'll add things on the fly. Yeah. Um the the fame, you know that that amazing teacher the Bueller Bueller. <laughs> I'm going to play some of him later cuz that is one of the most it's the least fun part in a way of the film because of how boring yeah. that teacher would be if you were in that class but one of the funniest moments being an audience member. Yeah, and he actually improvised the the scene they cut to later on was never actually in the original script. It's just he was so impressed with this guy doing the Bueller Bueller Bueller. He said, "Well, what else can we, we have to we have to have another thing for him?" <laughs> so he goes, "Okay, I just want you to um, just make something up. Just pretend you do it. You're a teacher and and do a really boring class about something you know a lot about." And he came up with it on the fly, and it and it made the film. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the anyone anyone, the Great Depression. Like <laughs> so anyone? perfect, and, and like you know, anyone? we're we're only listening to this audio Carabel, at the moment. But if you have seen the film, you know just those perfection Carabel, looks that that John yeah. Hughes gets Any from the actors, the extras, just looking so breeze, boring and stuff. And like, yeah, you're right. Like this guy, you said this is his second second ever acting gig. Acting gig. Yeah. Now, do you also remember him? Because I look at this guy and I feel like I've seen him in a dozen films. I think that I only remember him from two, and the other one? one was The Mask. You know, even if he was typecast, he should have got so much more work because he's one of the more fun, you know, parts of this film. And he is this teacher. And the great nemesis of this, you know, film, it's about a school kid skipping school. Who's the bad guy going to be? The principal. Yeah. Like, just, it seems like such a simple idea, but you got to think that it was only going to work once in a hundred goes. And it, it works here. And we, we talk about John Hughes, the director. You were just mentioning him. If you aren't, into your film, I guess if you are going to these film festivals, you are into your film probably a lot more well, than if you us to as this well. Podcast, and if you're so listening to us talk about a film that you've seen a hundred times, you're definitely into it. But for those who may not, you look at John Hughes, writer director. But I'm just looking at the movies that he's directed. He directed eight movies. Yeah, only eight movies. But he is like the. If you think about like eighties coming of age teenage yes. films, he is iconic. He's the guy. Look, he, he, and Mo- he and Molly candles. Ringwald yeah. oh, owned yeah. the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they just owned the eighties. Yeah, and didn't they? They got to. Did they get together after? I feel like oh, they got God. together, right? So they did Sixteen Candles. That was his first film, nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty five, they did The Breakfast Club. Now, from what I've read, and again, this could be altered by fans along the way, and I might have found it on Wikipedia. Who knows? But I think that I've heard, you know, along the way that the plan was to revisit the Breakfast Club characters every 10 years. He said he would have loved to have done that. Now, I don't know how far along he got before that idea was killed, but 1985, catch up with them in 1995, see them 10 years out of school, yeah. catch up with them 2005, you know, their, their 20th year anniversary really or something. Cool. And now you think about it, it's like, well, the film is called The Breakfast Club. Mm. As far as we know for this film, they're together for one day. Yeah. That's not much of a club. No, no, no. We don't know whether the next day they actually hang out. Woke up and went, no, I don't like you. Yeah. I was bored in detention. I needed, you know, I needed something to pass the time. And there was a couple of characters that probably could have done that. But yeah, I think that he and Molly Ringwald, uh, again, if you don't know the name, she's the redhead in the Breakfast Club and uh, was also 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink. That, um, 
that I think they got together or something happened between wow. them. They basically they weren't going to work together again, and and yeah. so that, that those plans died. Weird Science was also 1985. <laughs> uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. She's having a baby. Uncle Buck. Oh my God, 1989. He and did that? Uh, he directed Uncle Buck. Yeah, and then Curly How do Sue. I not know that? Talking about sequels or spin-offs and things, Ferris Bueller was turned into a TV series as well. Um, no, really? Very, very short-lived. Wow. And another thing I love about this film is that, you know, you might go and watch Iron Man. And part of the reason that we love Tony Stark is because of all the cool stuff he has and the how smart he is and how he can develop that intelligence into creating cool stuff, right? Ferris Bueller, like him ringing up sick, talking to people, kids at school, sick, and he's got a little little tape or a little CD where he just plays sound effects, yeah, you know, and on the keyboard and the yeah, synth and, and oh my god, you sound so sick, you know, and he's building up this story with different people, you know, and the plan that he has to get his girlfriend out of school by playing her dad and then just calling up Cameron and yeah. saying, look. I've got the ownership over you. I know I can talk you into doing anything. Yeah. Borry dad's car come and come pick you up. Do you know what's funny is I read somewhere, and again, it could have been IMDb, so who knows how accurate it is, but um, they were mentioning, because one of the, the main plot points of the film is that Ferris doesn't have a car. His sister has a car. Yeah. His younger sister yeah. has a car. <laughs> you know, Cameron has a car. He doesn't have a car. They pointed out that that actual, the synth that he uses for his job, back in the 80s, that would have cost like eight grand. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there's his car, you know, and his keyboard and yeah. his oboe. And all. He has all these things in his room. Yeah. He could have bought a couple of cars for that. But and you get the feeling too that maybe he's, he just asked, he, he's like, you know what? I might have use for something like that one day. Asks his parents yeah. for it because as you learn from his sister, he gets everything. Like, he gets away with everything. Like he's just the guy that everybody loves. And he's the, mm. not the worst kid at school, but he, he doesn't, he's not this angel that everyone believes him to be. But you watch this film as an audience member. You love this guy. There's yeah. no reason to hate this guy. Like, he's manipulating his best friend and doing something that he knows his best mate doesn't want to do. Yeah. But... Oh, that amazing scene where Cameron is just like walking back and forward from the car. Yeah. Just trying to decide <laughs> and just jumping up and, no, I'm not, I'm not. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me. So he just goes. That's another thing too. Like, I'm sure, sure it wasn't the first, but just the, the, the turning and breaking the fourth wall. Like, that was the one that really, I, I guess, helped make it mainstream with a lot of different yeah. audience members, young kids and stuff like that. And like how he does that and, and he sort of lets his guard down with the audience. That's what I love about the film. Like, when yeah. he turns to Cameron and he goes, look, he's got problems, okay? Well, and he's always working an angle. Yes. Yes. But he's honest to the camera, yep. which I think is great. And the funny part is, is Matthew Broderick actually almost turned down the role because he thought he was getting typecast wow. as a character. That, because he done, he's done a lot of theatre and yep. he's done a few movies as well. And he particularly just re, like just before the film, like Biloxi Blues, he was doing on Broadway and a few other films. A lot of the characters he was doing broke the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh God, I'm getting typecast as the break the fourth wall guy. So yeah, he right, almost okay. didn't take this film. Now, who else? You were telling me before about a few people that actually were up for this role. Yeah. John Cusack. So, um, again, this is from the 2005 DVD special edition. <laughs> uh, the casting directors, when they first sort of got the script in hand, the first two people they thought of to play uh, Ferris was Matthew Broderick and John Cusack. Just trying to picture that. Like, he definitely would have the look, but just the way that John would Cusack sort of... Would they have gotten of... Joan Cusack to play his um, to play his sister? <laughs> See that? Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she would have nailed that, actually. Yeah, that would she have been can, fun, too. She can do a bitchy sister yeah. like nobody's business. Uh, Amelia Westervez turned down Alan Ruck's role of, of Cameron yeah. because of, he'd just done Breakfast Club, yep. so he didn't want to do another John Hughes film. But then I suppose his brother, Charlie Sheen was in the film, too, so that's, well, that's maybe true. he didn't want to do a film with his brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, Alan Ruck actually at, at first wasn't allowed to audition for the role of Cameron because he was 29 at the time, and he was... <laughs> They said no, because back in the day, then you didn't have IMDb or knowing what pictures were. Just, but they wouldn't even let him send in a resume audition because, no, 29, you're too old. Yeah. Until they found out Matthew Broderick and, and Alan Ruck were actually playing best friends on stage at the time in, in, um, in Broadway on Biloxi Blues. 
And then that's when they realized that these two were playing best friends on stage every night on Broadway. They went, okay, well, let's bring him in and see what he can do. Bang, got the role. And if only they would know that that would be known as... Like, that's that's teenage movie making 101, is that you get someone in their late 20s, early 30s to play teenagers. Yeah. You know, it's just go along with it, guys. You know, and the thing is, I watch this movie, I don't question the fact that Cameron looks old as hell, like, no. for, for a teenager, because he works in that sort of character. Like, yeah. he looks a little bit more weathered because and of his mental Mia state. And was only 18. Like, was she really? Yeah, so, but they all kind of... I just I just bought them. I bought all three of them as teenagers. Not a problem. You know what I've just realised, actually? Like, I've been watching this movie... My whole life, really, yeah. because, you know, like I said before, it's pretty family friendly. Mia Sarah, like, I, I watched that movie and I'm like, oh my God, she oh, is she's the dream girl. gorgeous. But I think now that might have actually set up what I find attractive in a woman. Like, really? <laughs> people always paying out, they're like, you just like brunettes with big eyes. And I'm like, I do love big eyes uh, and I do like brunettes. You I'm know? team brunette with big eyes over here, definitely. <laughs> but now I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I've been watching this movie and she's a beautiful brunette. She's got big eyes and now I'm. You know, married to she's not a brunette at the moment, but certainly you know was at a time brunette with big eyes and a lot of other actresses that I've had crushes on over the years have had brunette. Yeah. But I think Mia Sarah might have started that. And and on top of that is she's not playing that token girlfriend that just no she's not arm candy. No. She gets she's smart. She's, yes, she knows how to. I mean, to be Ferris's girlfriend, I guess you've got to be able to know when he's working the room and and hustling. Yes. She can do it just as well as he can. Yeah. And at at times in this movie, she actually takes a step further than what Ferris is able to. Like there's moments where he sort of almost hits a wall and then she just snaps into it. Or even the moment where he comes and picks her up from school and you get the feeling, like at least at the time, you're like, she doesn't know about this. She just walks out, sees her father apparently, but she's like, bang, that's Ferris. Even before that, she's in class, like, you know, whatever, just bored out of it. A teacher's aide walks into the cl- no, sorry, the nurse walks into the classroom. Yeah, does and she's already putting the jacket on. She knows <laughs> she's out and she's waving goodbye to her friend. She already knows. <laughs> like that's what I'm talking about. Though you watch this, you're like, I want to be that guy. He's just so cool and like you know, you get you, you could sort of put onto him that he's a bit of a a Mary Sue character in a way because of like the whole nothing goes wrong for him. But, but you don't hate him for it. No, and then the best part though is and not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't sort of seen the film yet, but. At the end, it doesn't go right for him, mm. but it still goes right for yeah. him. Like, like just out of nowhere, he's just like, little sis. Yeah. And you buy it. Yeah. Like, I feel like if someone tried to do that now, we would sit here and we would tear it apart. It's been like, oh, deus ex machina, so convenient, yeah, yeah. lazy writing, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, I probably would. But this, it just... It all works out. Yeah. And it's great. And, and I think it. you feel for every single character. Like, they're all in such a different sort of path. Like, you think about Ferris and everything's going right for him. It's like, whatever. Then you've got Cameron. Wants to be there but knows that he shouldn't. You're with him. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, he's the whining friend. Because you're like, man, I I haven't even seen your dad. I haven't heard your dad in this film. Yeah. But I get it. I get who you are in that relationship. And I feel for you in this story. The sister, she could very easily just be the secondary bad guy. Ferris is the guy you love. You hate the older sister because she hates Ferris, you know, and hates that he gets away with everything. You don't. You get why she does. I just feel like throughout this film, while you want to see the principal fail, you do feel for him. You feel for everyone in this story, but they're all going through such different things. I just, I like I said, they wrote it in a week. Again, they develop it as it goes along and him as a director and mm. he can he can put that together with, with the actors. But to be able to create characters like that, that are all 
in a way working towards such different things yeah. at the expense of one another for, for many that, of them. It's that great thing where you can relate works. You can relate yes. to each of those characters. Yeah. Like it's at, at their core, there's an element to it that you can relate to. Yep. Even if you can't relate to Janie's like entire character, you can relate to that jealousy of a sibling. Mm-hmm. It's funny, there's something you said earlier when you were talking about Janie is you mentioned that she was the older sister. And for my entire life, I thought, yeah, Janie's the older sister. She's actually the youngest. I know that's the thing I keep thinking about her, but I don't know why. I think it's in subconsciously it's the fact that she's got the car and he doesn't, and you you accumulate and just her attitude. Car like she's age. be serious, no time for fun and games type thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then if you think about the film, they, he t- he talks early on about he's a senior. They're going mm. to college next year, and it's like so. Janie's either the same age or younger. You know, you <laughs> talk about uh, the fact that he was going to college, and that was another thing that with Sloane, Mia Sarah's character, not being the same type of role that you've seen before is that when they're in the pool at the end of the film or towards the end of the film and, and he's talking to the audience and he says the fact that he's going to college next year, he goes, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll try and see each other and stuff. And it's not like you go, oh, this has to happily, you know, end for both of them. And, oh, they'll be fine. They'll get through it all. It's like, he's stating some real truth. He's like, look, I'm going to leave school. She'll still be here for another year. Yeah. And, Look, shit might not work out. So You're honest. not giving us that cliche. It's an honest thing. In a movie mm. that's that's so fantastical and, and riddled with... Conveniences. Conveniences. That, when perfect. He's on, when he's yes. on the phone with the with, with the um, the snotty maitre d' at the restaurant, it's just the perfect convenience that the maitre d's changed lines at the perfect time that yeah. he's handed the phone over to Sloane and she's calling the cops. It's, yeah. like, it's just... It, it wasn't one of those sappy love stories. It wasn't about those no, two no, at all. getting together or anything like that. It was just... That movie could have been they were, they were just three best friends. Mm. You know, it was didn't necessarily have to be that Sloane and, and Ferris were together. Mm. You know, because it's not about that. It's it's about the experience they're having as friends. And such a uh, well paced film. Like you're not ever delving into the more real storylines of this film, like your Camerons and things like that, for too long before you get to another comedic scene. You know, yeah. you don't ever feel a lull at the same time. You don't ever think like, oh, this is just all highs and laughs and there's no real stakes or anything. Yeah. Like, Never do I think of Cameron as a whinger. No, not at all. He's just, he's got a lot on his plate. He's the yin to the yang know. that is yeah. Ferris. Like, they probably couldn't exist separate from each other in many ways. Ferris, while he is very much an individual, he wouldn't be the Ferris that we know in this film yeah. if Cameron wasn't his best friend. Yeah, and I relate to myself as the Cameron a bit in terms of, I have a mate, JD, who he was my Ferris. Yeah. He was that guy that everyone loved, all the guys wanted to be, all the girls wanted to be with, and he he would get me out of my shell, you know, in, in a lot of situations where I would be too nervous to go and do things. And I've experienced some phenomenally amazing, ridiculous things because I had him as a Ferris. Yeah, right. So it's, That's you know, cool. So yeah. it's a really cool, really cool thing to relate to in that. But then also I've been the Ferris in the same situation, you know. I see bits of myself with the, the wisecracking and the, you know, things like that. I can... Every character is so relatable. It is just the two of us in the room here tonight. Get it into uh, Geek. We have got a lot more people involved in the show who couldn't be with us. But uh, Brendan, I went to school with. I've known Brendan since I was 12. It's nearly 20 years. And in many instances, and I would say that if he was here too, I'm not just saying that because he's not and and, uh, and whatnot, but <laughs> he, I, I would be the camera to his Ferris because we, oh, really? we still laugh at the fact that We'd be sitting in class and whether some other other kids in the, in the class would be making comments or the teacher would say something and I would be the one to maybe mutter something under my breath because I'm like, I, I want him to have heard a joke that I said. I thought of myself yeah. as being funny. And then he would be the one to say it in front of everybody. He would have the guts to say something a little bit That's crude. That's because Brendan is always like that real monotone, dry wit kind of guy. Like he's very, I wouldn't have picked him for that. Oh, no. I, th- I think in some ways we actually act as... Cameron and Cameron a lot of the time too because like <laughs> we can be very quiet and and we're very 
geeky and all that sort yeah. of stuff. But uh, one one great thing when you look back at this film being 1986, and I, I, probably 10 years ago, I really started to, to realize when I started to rewatch this film and, and I thought about the merchandise, save Ferris. Like, that's one of the great <laughs> recurring jokes in this film is that, you know, kids graffitiing save Ferris, scratching it into school property. A blimp save Ferris, you know, like it's <laughs> yeah. just so, and the sister getting increasingly, in a day, in a in a day. day less than a day. So ridiculous. A, they They're a, having a, a fundraiser. A strippogram delivered to the front door with the flowers in a day. Like, just the impact this character has in one day. But, like, save Ferris. Doesn't mean anything if you haven't seen From the film. But one phone call. Yeah. It just, it's wildfire. It's Ferris Bueller. He's yeah. sick. Oh, my sick. God. I hear he's dying. Oh, my God. Not Ferris. Let's put together some money. Let's I hope for the best. Let's send him stuff. Right. But save Ferris. You can buy it on T-shirts. You can buy it bumper stickers. I got all this shit about 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't even think I... I think I got it even... even a badge, a, a picture of Matthew Broderick on a badge, just his head with Save Ferris under it. And That's I used to work brilliant. at the cinemas and I would just wear it. But just how it's, it's managed to not so much stay relevant, but just sort of stay in pop culture. And what I also love about this film, we spoke before about the, the fourth wall breaking and things, but geeks, we go and see Marvel film. What do you do? You stay until after the credits. Uh, or scenes that carry you through the credits. Now in this, I, I want to know, who leaves in the Ferris Bueller credits? Because the credits carry over the principal. Yeah, you've got that walking. entire extra scene of Mr. Rooney. Defeated. Getting on the bus, all that sort of stuff, yeah. while all the credits are rolling. Yeah, you're not leaving. No. you Because no, the, the movie's still going. It's, not it's once. Like a, it's like an epilogue. Yeah. And I don't think once I ever thought it's just going to be him, or even if I did think it was just going to be a shot of him walking for the entire credits... I didn't want to miss a second no. of it. I, I need to watch this guy walk like a defeated man that he is for five minutes. That would have done me fine. But the fact that he gets the bus, everything's so yeah. slow. So you slow. You're waiting. Walk on. Yeah. And it's, you just, yeah, you're like, come on, hurry up. But at the same time, you're like, no, no, I'm enjoying every second of this, you know? Yeah. And, and then it ends. You, and... It's, it's almost like Home Alone. You're just waiting for one more thing to <laughs> yeah. happen to him. You're just waiting for him to like get on the bus and, or he gets hit by the bus or yeah. something or, a student hits him with a spit water in the middle of, of his forehead or something. You're just waiting for one more thing to hit him. Yeah. Like, and that's almost the fantasy element more than anything else in this film, being, a, you know, watching it when we're in school. It's the principal. Now, I had a great principal or I had a bad principal, but you always had someone at school, a teacher, that you're like, God damn it, man. I just... Yeah. You got one of those the, punchable faces, the you know, like the, the, the guy that you don't like, the yeah. bureaucrat, <laughs> and that's what he was. Because was he? Was We've it, all got one. Was he even the principal? Was was it one of those weird American terms like he was like the dean of students or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I just always refer to him as the principal. Yeah, I, me I, too. I only watch this movie a week ago. Now I, I still can't. I just think of him as being the principal because he takes it upon yeah. himself. Well, he's, got, he's got a secretary. So oh, it's she's like, great. I love that actress. She's I don't amazing. Know, so many little roles I've seen her in, and she's a Everywhere. cute little old lady, and you know she's got a little bit of sass about her. You know, they don't actually. Expect Strange dialogue at all in this entire film. And you don't even think about I've that? I've never noticed it before yeah. until it was pointed out to me. They have a scene at the start of the film, like you're saying, over the phone, where it's when he thinks he's got him, he gets on the phone, Ferris is just talking while he's doing up his tie. <laughs> Mr. Rudin doesn't say a word because he's just realised he, he, what he thinks is he's said all this stuff to the real Mr. Um, Sloan's yeah. dad or whatever it is. And at the end of the film, when he's caught at the back, at the back door, Mr. Rooney gives this massive speech. Ferris has got nothing to say. Janie comes in, saves the day, Ferris goes inside. They never exchange dialogue. That's yeah. it. That's brilliant. Think about a successful film where the antagonist and the protagonist don't exchange dialogue yeah. through the entire film. Unheard of. There's a lot of movies out there, whether it be action films or you know dramas, cop films or whatever, where the two characters have minimal screen time together. Yeah. 
but they still have it. They still have those dialogues. They have to have that face to face. Yeah. And in this film, they have the face to face. And you walk away from the film, and you go, "That's one of the great rivalries I've seen." You know, yeah. like whether it be this type of story, you you get why one wants to outdo the other. And like I said, they they never actually yeah. exchange dialogue. Written in a week. <laughs> Talk about overachieving. Jesus. And then you get the last piece uh, of the puzzle, the post-credit sequence, where, again, <laughs> a little bit of fourth wall breaking, and he comes out, and it's very much made for the cinema because he says, go home. You know, yeah. If you're watching this at home, it doesn't mean anything. But it's like, Movie's go, over. It's one of the standout post-credit sequences of all time, I think, and nothing happens. And I say standout because Deadpool, the most recent one in our minds that really broke the fourth wall and that we all loved it, not for that, but one of the reasons we loved about it. And you just knew something was going to be at the end of that film. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm going to talk about it if you want to tune out for a couple of minutes. But if you have seen it, I hope that you were like I was and just going, could they Could they do this? Are they about to do this? And bang, it feels like you're in the same hallway yeah. as Ferris Buell at his house and Deadpool comes out in a bathrobe and only swore then i'm so sorry <laughs> a bathrobe and i'm i was and a pretty good match a pretty good oh match my in god terms of the i would have sworn it was the and... same set and they had the costume up there like it was a museum dedicated yeah. to the film i was laughing like, like they got a, a, a freeze spoke. frame shot and just digitally inserted deadpool into yes, the scene yes, like yes. that's how good it looks and i just thought well done team deadpool because if you're gonna rip off a post-credit sequence of somebody who breaks the fourth wall Maybe that's the most obvious one, but it's also, in a way, the most sort of the untouchable scene. You know, you almost don't want to do it because it, it was perfect the way that it was. You know, yeah. but the fact that it was kind of riffing off on it, but at the same time, it was its own tease to its own sequel and things. And I just love, like I said before, how not so much relevant this film is anymore, even though it is very timeless in uh, in many ways. But the fact that it is still so in pop culture that something as new and as fresh as a Deadpool film that became the massive success that it was and is Mm. says, hey, let's do Ferris Bueller because everyone loves Ferris Bueller. And even if you don't, you go watch it and you'll see why. And then this will just be so much better for you. Yeah, because it's like, I mean, in a a pre-Melissa McCarthy Ghostbusters world, you would say, well, why would you you try and emulate that last scene of Ferris Bueller? you can't, it'd be like someone saying they wanted to remake yeah. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> you go, why? 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 It's perfect. You yeah. don't You don't need to. Why would you do that? I mean, arguably, people we've said that about Ghostbusters and they did it anyway. Yes. So, who knows? Maybe we'll get a Ferris Bueller remake. <laughs> <laughs> I, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm already, I'm already seeing Miles Teller, like, just like <laughs> on a poster. I don't know why, but it's, it's in my, I can't get it in my head now. Emma and, Stone is Sloan. Well... Yeah. See now, don't make points why I want to do this because I love Emma Stone. Like she can't do any wrong, really. She probably win an Oscar in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Like it's 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 one of the ones, and hardly enough from the eighties. It's that Back to the Future, lock them in a vault, never remake them. Yep. it's done. Don't need to be touched. That's why these sort of film festivals exist. I think you know. Yeah, you can go and get it on a streaming service or or buy you know the movie at JB Hi-Fi, something like that, iTunes, whatever you if you like us, like your physical. If you don't. You can find these movies, but this is why these films exist. You're going to go to the cinema. You can go see a new release film, or it's like, hey, here's a classic. Watch it on the big screen. Yeah. See how it was always meant to be seen. There's no special effects, so it doesn't age. Yeah. You don't go, oh, geez, that was a bit of a dodgy CGI. None of that. No. Like, it's just... And you know what? A musical number in the middle of a film makes it work. I'm not a musical guy. I'd usually spit on that sort of scene. And it's like, yes, that works too, because it's 
friggin' Ferris Bueller. Yeah, and you buy that this teenager on a day off from school where he's trying to hide from, you know, his, you know, the school manages to get up on a parade float in the middle of Chicago, <laughs> sing Dunkashay and a Beatles song, and everyone just goes for it, yeah. you know? It happens. That's totally yeah. fine. <laughs> well, that's Ferris Bueller's day off. Uh, number one of an amazing program by uh, Event Cinemas for In the House to kick off season 2017. As we said earlier, the next movie is actually part one of a double feature, The Fly and Gattaca. It's on 17th of February. Check eventcinemas.com.au to find out where it may be around you. We are based in Brisbane, so it's at the Myers Centre. I know in Sydney you can find it at George Street, but just check out eventcinemas.com.au and uh, find where you might be able to track down if nothing the else for, program. A, for a Jeff Goldblum fix, really. Oh, yeah. You can check that out. The Fly and Gattaca, 17th of February. Tickets, $13. If you're a Cinebuzz member, $11. Save two bucks. I'm pretty sure it's free to sign up, guys. It's going to pay for itself straight away. Cinebuzz member, eventcinemas.com.au. Get out to In the House. As we said, the, uh, the full program is up on the website, and we talked about it earlier. The Fly, Gattaca, 17th of February. We will be back, and uh, probably not so much of a longer episode next time because we ran through a pr- the program a little bit tonight, but uh, hmm. we will be back to talk The Fly and Gattaca this time in two weeks' time. Have, hopefully, the full Get Into Movies team here with that with Brendan and Reese. But, Maddie, I assume you'll be back, my friend. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, well, neither can I. There's going to be two, uh, two great movies, as we said. Jeff Goldman, The Fly, Gattaca, Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, and Jude Law. Plenty more to talk about in two weeks' time for Cult Film Classics in the House, brought to you by Event Cinemas. We are Get Into Geek. You can check out all of our gear, getintogeek.com. Depending on how you're listening to us, we are available on both SoundCloud and iTunes. If you want to drop us a line, you want to post some questions, post some facts of your own about the upcoming films, hit us up on uh, getintogeek.gmail.com. Yeah, I've, I've actually never seen The Fly, so if you've got any stuff, you know, let us know your thoughts on it. I've seen Gattaca, but I haven't actually seen The Fly all the way through. So um, feel free to drop us your thoughts or any questions or trivia. I love my trivia. I love my movie <laughs> trivia. <laughs> and you can also find us on uh, social media too, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at simply Get Into Geek. Getintogeek.com.